From LPL Financial, welcome to Market Signals. I'm your host, Ryan Dietrich. I mean, this week, I mean, I know there's going to be a lot of people are going to be watching jobs reports. Uh, us technicians will be a little bit more focused on interest rates. You mentioned the 10-year yield. It spiked up on Friday. Now it's back down. I want to see if value can continue to outperform. I think the big question people are wondering is, all these growth stocks are coming back. Is that for real? We'll be monitoring those charts closely to see if it is. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of the LPL Market Signals podcast. Ryan Dietrich here. Have a uh, special guest this week. Jeff Bookbinder is enjoying a well-deserved vacation. So we're bringing on Scott Brown from our team. Scott, this is, I believe, your first Market Signals podcast. How nervous are you? I don't know if I'm super nervous. I'm super excited. I mean, it is definitely the first time. So it's, it's a good start to a Monday morning. Yes. I mean, you know, so I guess before we we'll get into a lot of different stuff, maybe in like 30 seconds, because they'll get a feel of who you are over the next 30 minutes or so. But how do you help our more than 18,000 advisors on the LPL research team? I will like a lot of members with LPL research. I do wear a lot of hats, but I think the main thing is with technical strategy for our team. And so I help inform some of our uh, more short-term market views and really take a price action focused look at the market, look at sentiment, seasonality, other things like that. But kind of like you, the CMT training is what I, the way I enjoy looking at markets. And so we do a Tuesday webinar for our advisors as well as, well as the technical Friday morning calls. And I also sit on our strategic and tactical asset allocation committee, uh, kind of looking at those views, overweight financials, overweight energy, underweight staples, whatever it is. I kind of let advisors know our view of the markets over the next six to 12 months. Yeah, I say at the end of the day, I think a technician kind of draws a picture, right? There's no, it's not easy. I mean, if it were, if they were foolproof, everybody would do it. Um, but, you know, obviously, this is a podcast, we are going to share some of the charts you see, but we're going to do our best to verbally explain. And I think we'll do a pretty, I think we'll do a pretty good job of it, verbally explain to people who listen to the podcast, uh, just to kind of how you see the world from a little bit more of a technical point of view. Now, Scott, if you've watched the podcast or listened to it, we sometimes, I sometimes throw some zingers at Jeff, and we're going to start off with this. Apparently, there is there are UFOs. There's a report over the weekend. It says UFO report defies worldly explanation. According to this report, there are 144 UFO cases that were studied. 18 of them couldn't be explained. In other words, the way these ships, I'm going to call them ships, I don't know, these way these UFOs moved, they started, they stopped, there was no explanation. The U.S. government did not say they're UFOs, but they also <laughs> left the door open that maybe they are UFOs. Um, what, 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 I'll give my opinion. What is your take on this interesting phenomenon that we've seen over the past a couple of days from the U.S. government with this report that came out? I'm probably going to have to be in the skeptic camp. Um, you know, I, I agree they're unidentified. That's kind of right in the name. But are they aliens or do we just not know exactly what they are? Um, I'm going to wait to actually see the aliens. It seems it seems strange that the UFOs only want to show themselves to like meteorologists and Navy pilots. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm I'm by nature more of a skeptic, although I'm a big fan of alien movies. You know, I mean, I, I love I love those types of things, but um it really interesting. I mean, I, I did not read the entire report. I'm not quite that um into it, but it just was uh, interesting that came out over the weekend. And yeah, I thought it but we're gonna try to massage this together the best that I can. But, you know, we're going to talk about technicals, right? And there is no answer for technicals, all right? Everyone kind of looks at a chart a little bit differently or the same, and it's kind of like UFOs. Some people believe and some don't want to, you know, but I guess, you know, Scott, before we get in, into this, kind of tell me why someone should believe in using market technicals. Before I go there, Jeff and I usually talk about valuations and fundamentals, and I'll talk a little bit about momentum and relative strength. But you know, why do you think someone should believe it when it comes to using price action as a way to potentially um, kind of predict, if you will, the best you can where future prices might go? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to it's the end goal. Um, you know, fundamentals, valuations. I absolutely believe that you know they they play a part. But price is the only thing that ends up on your client statement. And so if you're trying to increase the value of an account and increase the value of stocks and ETFs and mutual funds that you own, it seems like the study of you know what might do well should start with a study of price. It's kind of like, you know, if you were trying to predict who's gonna win the NBA championship, if you looked at, you know, a correlation coefficient of players' heights over history and everything, but you just never looked at who had the best record in the regular season. Uh, so I think there's other factors for sure. Those factors really drive the price, uh, but we do definitely believe that price should be part of kind of what we're studying. Yeah, well, as listeners to this podcast know, actually, we can almost guarantee, we can't make certain guarantees, right? Compliance won't let us, but the Hawks are probably not going to win at all. That's because last week, I predicted or I picked the Hawks to win the NBA championship. And if anyone has followed this podcast the last two years, I have an incredible ability to pick the loser or pick the team that won't win. So I guess we're certain the Hawks won't do it. But anyway, um, you know, I, I like the Churchill quote, the further back into the past I look, the further into the future I can see. I'm with you. I think there is a lot of knowledge uh, from the past. You know, we've seen these things time and time again. And I'm going to use the F word, which is a word we haven't used very often in this podcast. The F word I'm talking about is Fibonacci. Now, to keep this very simple, 61.8% is a very common retracement. You'll see stocks pull back 61.8% or stocks or markets or indices or commodities. Um, that's a, a, a um, retracement level. Here's what I want to point out. If you go from the lows of 1982 to the peak in 2007 on the uh, S&P 500, I mean, a significant hundreds of hundreds of points of, of gains there. Take a wild guess where the S&P 500 bottomed in the depths of the financial crisis in early 2009, right at, yes, 666, but that actually comes out to 61.8% retracement. Is that totally random? I don't know. All right. But I think it's one of those things that I wouldn't want to ignore uh, some of these um, things that we're about to talk about here um, in, in today's um, in today's podcast. When you look at, again, kind of the way sentiment and human psychology and price action, all of these things do overlap. And I think it's really a really interesting conversation. So let's just get into it, Scott. This week's weekly market commentary, which people should be able to listen to. No, you're not going to listen to it unless you listen, I guess, in your head as you read. But nonetheless, you can read it uh, today by the time you see it 
lpl.com to scroll down a little bit on the weekly market commentary. But we took a look, I guess we called it three worries. Now we've been bullish. I mean, you followed this podcast for a while, but we've also said, listen, year two historically can just be a choppy mess. And I'm aware like stocks just made new highs on Friday, but still not that much higher than where they were a couple months ago. I mean, Scott, we are sharing on the YouTube channel kind of how this bull market stacks up, if you will, with some of the previous best bull markets, uh, the start to 82 bull, the 2002, uh, 2003 bull market, and then the March 2009 bull market. You know, this one is stronger than those, but those all were kind of, I'm going to say a choppy mess, um, you know, for a big part of year two. You want to kind of build on, do you think history will repeat itself with a choppy mess? And, and this isn't really a worry, because honestly, hey, after a 90% rally, maybe a catch your breath is okay. But maybe we're a little spoiled by thinking new highs are just a given, like a lot of investors who are new to this game think. Tell me about year two. Yeah, I mean, year two, and this, it really appeals to, I think, technicians, because year one never makes too much sense if you're looking at the fundamentals. Year one, the markets tend to go just straight up, but there's so much terrible. I mean, the fourth quarter, you know, for deaths of COVID was just absolutely horrible. And it was one of the best quarters ever for stocks. And so year one, the fundamentals, they just don't line up. And then it kind of flip-flops in year two historically. And everything seems great. We're all going out to restaurants again, going to sporting events and concerts. Uh, life is good, but then the price action tends to have already sought that out a year ahead of time and tends to kind of flatline, even as you maybe don't perfectly meet uh, those incredibly high expectations in year two. And that's, again, it's the way history has tended to play out. And so we wouldn't be surprised if it did again this year. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You think back to like 1984, 83, 84, that was kind of a sideways choppy market with some incredible economic growth but a lot of the economic or a lot of the price gains were done in you know the first part of 1983 2004 is a historical uh, year for stocks just really kind of going sideways going nowhere if you will and then in 2010 we had as much as a 16% correction in the summer months again these all took place during year 2 now stocks did come back by the end of 2010 to make new highs but again i think it's just the, the what you what you said there i want to build on it the idea that the stock market is sniffing out better times ahead. That's what it was doing last year at this time when we all were confused. Why in the world can the initial claims be coming in over a million claims every single week, yet the stock market's bouncing and then eventually making new highs within, I think it was about five months or so, um, You know, right in the midst of that bear market, one of the fastest bounces back to new highs we've ever seen. And then you start to see massive economic growth, right? I mean, this year, we, LPL Research, we think we could see upwards of 6.5% GDP growth this year, which would be one of the best years since the early 80s. Who's to say we don't get a tad better than that and crack maybe 7%? The best year since the early 50s. Now, stocks are having a really good year, um, you know, up 10, 12% or so, about 12% or so. Um, but still, we do think the likelihood that things could be a little choppy and sideways Following along with what you tend to see in year two is um, quite likely. Now, Scott, one other of the concerns that we mentioned, this kind of came from Jeff, but you, you helped put together um, this week's commentary, valuations. You know, So we talk about technicals. We got more technical charts coming up here. Um, but valuations, there's no doubt about it. You look at the forward P on the S&P 500, it's up over 20, 2021 20, approximately or so, which is one of the highest levels we've seen since, drum roll please, the late 1990s. 
Tell me a little bit about valuations and maybe why they aren't such a worry um, like uh, some people think they might be, um, you know, when they match, again, the highest level since late 1990s. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two reasons. One, and this is going to appeal to the technicians, is that valuations tend to not be a great short-term timing tool. Uh, now, they have a very strong correlation with your long-term expected returns, but over the next 12 months, they just aren't that great. Valuations have kind of been trending upward for the past decade, and they can stay elevated uh, for a while. But the other reason is that even though stocks are expensive, most investors really have two choices, stocks or bonds. And while mm -hmm. stocks are expensive, bonds are even more expensive. Uh, and we think interest rates are going to rise, and with not paying you very much coupon, you just don't have very high bond return expectations. And so that there is no alternative uh, seems to be in play here. And I think that, that makes stocks a little bit more attractively valued between those two options. Uh, absolutely. With, with yields near historically low levels still, I know as you and I do this podcast, the 10-year yields taking another kind of what I'm going to call surprise move lower. Jeff and I discussed that kind of a surprise, surprise move lower in the 10-year yield last week. We've seen a little follow through this morning. Um, you know, but, but again, there, there's just all these different factors that are taking place. But again, the truth is stocks might be expensive. Bonds are like historically expensive. So let's just, let's uh, let's remember that. Now, some other charts, Scott, that you shared. So we're making new uh, highs on the S&P 500, but the NASDAQ, small caps, Dow, you know, mid caps, none of those are at, now they're close. Some of them are close, don't get me wrong, but we're not seeing it. So I think what I want to point out is participation. We might be seeing new highs, but it's not like we're seeing a ton of participation. And again, on the YouTube channel, we're kind of showing something called new four-week lows. Kind of, again, best you can explain this to someone verbally. What's going on under the surface, even though stocks are making new highs? Yeah, so this is kind of another part of technicals that we would refer to as the internals of the market or the breadth and participation. And so when the S&P 500 makes a new all-time high like it did last week, what we want to know is how many individual stocks of the 500 stocks in the S&P 500, how many of those made a new high? Ideally, in a healthy market, you'd still like to see a lot of them. We know not all 500 are going to be there, but maybe 30 to 40% would be a good reading. And that's consistently what we saw, if you look over on the left-hand side, in the first quarter of the year, and it was also the case in the second half of 2020. Over the past month and a half, two months, that hasn't been the case. Uh, now, we're going to look at the kind of growth value rotation that's absolutely part of the story. But on Thursday, with that new record high, just 12% of the S&P 500 hit a new one-month high uh, in just a few weeks before that, just after the um, Wednesday FOMC meeting, 60% or so of the S&P 500 hit a four-week low. So you've actually got more stocks hitting one-month lows than one-month highs. That could be a little bit of a warning sign there. We would just like to see that can improve. Maybe if we keep on trucking, some more stocks can rebound. But right now, you can see it's just not nearly as strong under the surface. We've had Facebook and Amazon and Alphabet, all those kind of stocks resurge. Well, they're really big weights in the S&P 500. And so when they do well, the index can do well, even if not all the stocks are really doing that well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's not into the world stuff, but we are saying, hey, new highs are great. Who doesn't who doesn't want, you know, the stock market to make new highs? If you have a well-diversified portfolio, maybe it does, maybe that's not making new highs right now. Cause again, it's being led by a few stocks, which is one of the arguments we saw or heard a lot about last year. Only a couple stocks are leading us, yet the market did keep going higher. So it absolutely can happen. Uh, our friends at Bespoke over the weekend, I saw a report here, Scott. So we have a new S&P 500 high, right? We know that last Thursday and Friday. Yet on Friday, less than half of the stocks in the S&P 500 were above their 50-day moving average. So just a nice intermediate term trend line. Uh, you tend to see significantly you know, 70, 80, 90% of stocks above the 50-day moving average when you're making new highs. So once again, it's just a different way to say there's not as much participation now. Let's insert the scary music here. According to Bespoke, the only other times we've seen anything like that were June of 1998, which was right before the Asian contagion, um, September, October, long-term capital management fell apart also. So a warning sign then. December of 99, obviously, um, you know, we know the NASDAQ peaked after, the S&P peaked a little bit later, but it wasn't, again, the best signal. And then, are you ready for this? The peaks in 73 and the peaks in 29. <laughs> So there were some other periods, though, that were not um, as, as I guess we're going to say, worrisome or bearish. But I think the key concept here is, listen, there, there have been some warning signs before, and we've seen new highs without a lot of participation. So that's um, something to be aware of. Now, Scott, the next thing I want to talk about, though, maybe we're seeing one-month lows, two-month lows, three-month lows. We're not seeing a lot of 52-week lows. Build on that concept. Yeah, and I think this is really important for taking the more long-term approach and putting what we're saying in perspective, because we're not calling for some sort of a bear market. We're just saying, hey, right. probably don't want to be quite as aggressive as we were year one. The good news, though, is there's basically no 52-week lows to speak of. And you mentioned December 1999. Well, we went back and we looked at December 1999, and this data looks very, very different. Already in December, the market didn't top out until March of 2000. It didn't really start falling apart until much later in 2000. But in late 1999, you were routinely seeing 10 to 15% of the index hitting 52-week lows and consistently seeing more 52-week lows than 52-week highs. By the time the market topped out, almost no stocks uh, were making 52-week highs and 20% plus were making 52-week lows. That's just not the case right now, basically no stocks 52-week lows. So I think it's more that short-term, the one-month high data being a little bit lacking. It has more short-term, more potentially shallow implications, uh, not a 1999-2000 bear market uh, type call at all from us here. Exactly. And Jeff has pointed out many times before, you know, we're early in an economic cycle. We just had a recession, right? This economic cycle of growth is less than a year old. All right. Let's not forget, we also have something called the Fed. The Fed, we'll talk more about the Fed here in a little bit. Um, but but the Fed is still more of a, a tailwind, right? I mean, the Fed is still keeping rates low. And I know there was the hawkish talk a couple of weeks ago, but the Fed is still quite dovish. So you've got a dovish Fed, historically dovish Fed, and early in the economic cycle of growth. Those are two major things that were not in play in 99, 2000, where the Fed started to get a little more um, you know, hawkish, if you will, raising rates, popping the bubble, I guess, looking back, um, knowing what we know now. Um, and also, obviously, a 10-year economic cycle of growth, approximately. So, so those are some interesting things. Now, Scott, one other indicator, and this is what we actually titled this week's um, um, podcast, the Krispy Kreme indicator. 
Now, let's just, before we even go there, what do you think of Krispy Kreme? Is it one of your favorite donuts in the middle? Where do you lie, if you will, in the Krispy Kreme donut world? I'm a pretty big fan, so I was raised on Krispy Kreme. I mean, Krispy Kreme, go. the hot light. I mean, I, I'm a big fan. Now, I think we talked on National Donut Day, you know, donuts are the new cupcakes, and there's a lot of really good specialty donut shops that I'm a pretty big fan of. So I don't know if I can quite call Krispy Kreme my favorite anymore, but I'm definitely a fan. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar. I mean, yes, I'd rather go to a specialty uh, donut place. But again, when you're driving around and you see that hot sign on, it's like, oh, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound too bad. I remember being like a kid, I guess we'll call this 20, 25 years ago, going in the South, you know, and you'd see the Krispy Kreme signs and it was, that was like Disney world. That was pretty cool. <laughs> I remember going to those, but enough about that. So Scott, here we go. We're talking about the early two thousands versus now let's um, let's open Pandora's box a little bit. Krispy Kreme is set to have their IPO this week. Now that can always change, but as of as of what we know right now, Krispy Kreme's having an IPO. And I was like, well, that's kind of funny because Krispy Kreme was a publicly traded company a long time ago. And then you look into things a little bit. Krispy Kreme's first IPO, all right, when they came out was April of 2000. Obviously, right as the bubble started bursting with uh, technology stocks and, and, and you had a three-year bear market. And now Krispy Kreme, they went private. They had a lot of issues, had some accounting issues. Now things are great. Everybody's having IPOs. We're going to have record IPOs this year. And all of a sudden, Krispy Kreme is back with another IPO. Now, we kind of already hinted at why we don't think this is another 2000s. But, I mean, Scott, anything kind of strike you there with the Krispy Kreme indicator flashing, the hot sign, maybe the warning sign as well? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely one of those interesting things, especially when we were just looking at all of these similarities. And I know people were talking about 1999 a lot last year when all the gross stocks were really having their big run in the first eight months. Um, I don't know. I don't know if Krispy Kreme has some real inside information. Of course, you know, they're trying to take advantage of high mm -hmm. stock valuations. That's typically a good time uh, to go public. Maybe the insiders know something. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's one of those more anecdotal things. You probably don't want to make, be making too big a portfolio decisions based on. Right. Make your decisions while you're eating them, maybe, but not not based around that. Um, I, I agree. I mean, you know, we don't have a slide of this, but we've talked before about the credit markets, right? The smartest guys in the room, uh, the credit markets, spreads, things like that. We're not seeing anywhere near. I mean, we're not seeing any stress at all in the credit markets, to be honest. We're not seeing anywhere near some of the stress that we've seen before. So um, it's interesting to talk about. It's kind of one of those, oh, my goodness, you see Krispy Kreme's IPO. Last time the IPO, the market was in a three-year bear market for the first time since the 30s. That's exciting to say the media is going to run with it, but we want to say that we are not overly concerned with the Krispy Kreme indicator. Now, one other indicator, and I worked on these numbers over the uh, weekend, so the month of June is not over yet. We, we, we are fully aware of that. But as of Friday, year to date, the S&P was up 14% uh, for the year. Now, I went back, Scott, and looked at all the previous times you had. I went, I picked 12.5%. Why did I pick that? Honestly, kind of totally random, but gives a little bit of wiggle room if we see a little bit of a sell-off here uh, last few days of June. But let's call it a really good start to the year, the first six months of the year, if the S&P 500 is up at least 12.5%, which it probably will be this year, depending how things shake out. The good news, the next six months are usually pretty strong. 
The average return in the next six months after a good start to a year, first six months, is 7.1%. Median return, 9.7%. Compare that with the average year, since 1950, of 4.7% on average, median 5%. So your median return is nearly double. Um, higher 75% of the time. The most recent years we saw good starts like this. Some of these might ring a bell if you like to wear the bowl costume sometimes. 2019, 2013, 98, 97, 95, all right, and 89. I mean, those are the most recent. Yes, 1987 is in there where, where that 86 was down, 75 was down, and 83 was down also. There's that 83, by the way, second year of a bull market. How about that? The rest of the year was actually negative. Wouldn't that be interesting if, if history didn't repeat, but it rhymes like Mark Twain told us. But still, I think the key concept I want to point out here is if we get a pullback, we get some consolidation, you, you want to be a buyer of it. And that's what year two usually tells us. Year two of a bull market's higher 10 out of 10 times since World War II. Not all those years had really spectacular gains, though. You tend to see good gains. We're off to a great start. Year two started on March 23rd of this year, right? Because that's when the low was March 23rd of 2020. So we're off to a good start with year two. Um, but again, I think it's just important to note. I mean, Scott, I've been sharing a lot of these. You have too. It sometimes seems almost as simple as an object in motion tends to stay in motion unless something messes it up. This is just another way to look at that. You want to build on anything I just said or just kind of the idea of momentum? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's really the foundation of technical analysis. And I think people, you know, you hear like past performance is not indicative of future results, and that's true. But actually, that instinct is kind of right, because when we do all these stats, and this is kind of where the momentum factor comes from, stocks that perform really well over the trailing 12 months tend, on average, be better stocks. Now, not every stock that's been fantastic is going to be great. And if something's up 2000%, it probably isn't going to turn around and do that again the next year. But you see that with broad market averages like this. And when you have a really strong first six months, it tends to lead into a strong next six months on average, even though people's instinct is probably to think strong six months, oh, well, we've got to revert to the mean and the next six months will probably be bad. Usually when you test these things out and run the numbers like you do so well, it almost never tells that story. It usually tells the opposite. Yeah, we've been sharing this is we call this podcast market signals for a reason. And we've been sharing a lot of these signals that, that honestly have been saying the same thing for well over a year now, that this is a new bull market stocks are likely going to go higher, there will be consolidations, there'll be pullbacks, by the way, we haven't had a 5% correction on a closing basis on the S&P since November. I'm sorry, since October. All right. That's a, that's a long time. We've been spoiled. So let's not ignore the fact that we've been pretty spoiled. So there probably will be some consolidation volatility year two. Perfectly normal. But again, we at LPL Research with our advisors and the millions of clients that they service, we are going to use it as an opportunity to add to uh, continued um, stocks outperforming bonds. It's one of our big calls this year. And it's been right so far. Stocks will drastically outperform bonds. That's how we positioned our portfolios. So Scott, I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, Fed here, then I'll bring you back in and talk about the 10-year yield. Let's kind of go that way. Um, I've got a fun, playful image up. I say the Fed is more split than the Royals anymore. I got a picture of uh, the Royal family there. If you follow the drama with the Royal family, there's some, some issues there. But the Fed sure feels that way. Remember last week, Jeff and I talked about the Fed meeting that was viewed more hawkishly because the dot plots, getting all geeky with some of these words here, the dot plots said, okay, you know, we could see a couple of different rate hikes here in 2023. We expected only one rate hike. Now it's going to be two. Um, you know, we weren't overly shocked by it. Markets 
seemed to be initially shocked, but the Fed came out and got the fire extinguisher out as much as they could. Williams, Mester, Daly, Powell, and Rosen, Rosengren, Rosengreen, Rosengreen, I think is his name. Um, they all came out and they're extremely dovish last week in one way or another. That calmed some fears. Now you still got Bullard and Bostic um, to, and Kaplan, some of the more hawkish Fed members that were out there. We said last week there wasn't a lot of headline news, so to speak. It was all about these various Fed members, some voting members, some non-voting members. We're going to come out and give their opinion. Um, we've got a couple more this week, but it's, uh, you know, the, the Fed, it, I don't know if it's a happy family or not. You definitely have kind of two sides to this, but I think the Fed did a really good job last week um, trying to talk back, if you will, the reaction to the uh, more hawkish take on the initial um, reaction to the Fed meeting that we had two weeks ago. Now, Scott, okay, all that, whatever. Who, well, the Fed, okay, big deal. The Fed does this, the Fed does that. What matters to us, what matters to investors is the reaction to the stock market. So let's talk a little bit about the 10-year yield here and kind of, I believe uh, the chart we've got, is this also taking a look at value growth? Maybe not. Um, just tell me a little bit about the 10-year yield and how it impacts value and growth and kind of along the lines of what the Fed just did. Yeah, so a lot of it tends to be correlated. So when we see interest rates rising, one, that's usually indicative of a more healthy environment, something that favors uh, cyclical stocks like financials and energy and industrials. Uh, but there's also kind of, if you want to get geeky with the balance sheets, higher interest rates can weigh um, on your valuation analysis for growth stocks. And so as interest rates rise, that risk-free rate increases it can kind of decrease the attractiveness of that really hot growth stock that has a super high valuation. And so there's a little bit of two-factor things going on here. We've seen the 10-year yield, and we actually have two things plotted on here that I think are key. So the 10-year yield is the one in blue, and the five-year yield uh, is down there in orange. And we've seen the both of them basically go sideways over the past three months. And since that time, growth has come back a little bit. Growth outperformed value stocks. Some of those really hot financials and energy and industrials have pulled back a little bit, at least in relative terms, uh, versus growth. And so we think all that's correlated. But, and this is why we're really sticking with the value call ever so slightly, just a tilt towards value. We think in the second half, we're going to eventually resume higher on interest rates. And one key to that, we've been looking at the 10-year yield. Most people are focused on the 10-year yield there in blue, it hasn't perked up much. It's about 1.5% today. But the five-year yield has actually spiked and broken out recently. It did that following the FOMC meeting a couple of weeks ago. I think maybe it's a little bit of a leading signal that eventually the 10-year yield is going to follow, and that's probably good for those more value-type sectors. Yeah, and it's, it's real interesting. We talked a little bit about this last week, the idea that the shorter-term yields have spiked and broken out, like you said, but your longer term yields like 10 year and 30 year, those haven't, right? And they've actually kind of weakened a little bit or, or gone a little bit lower. And what is that? Well, you think about the yield curve, right? We talked about the yield curve, just the difference between short-term and long-term rates. What happens when short-term rates go up and long-term rates go down? The yield curve flattens. And when you have that take place, it's called a bare flattening yield curve. And historically speaking, at least, that's kind of a little bit of a worrisome bond markets, maybe a little scared about something under the surface. This is very early, so we're not firing um, the warning shots yet. But again, that, that's a unique way to look at it. But still, historically speaking, um, it makes sense that longer term yields will follow short term yields here, um, you know, higher when all is said and done. But it's something we're obviously going to watch every single week. Now, along the lines of the Fed, the one big worry it felt like was, oh, my goodness, 
the Fed might hike rates in 2022. You know, some people were saying that. I mean, the, the dot plots didn't quite say that. They're saying 2023, two hikes. But I don't think it'd be shocking if the economy keeps improving um, and the stock market keeps hanging in there. Inflation kind of stays not massively high, but still a high level. We could see our first rate hike sometime next year, late, late next year. I don't think that's a shock. Well, here's what people need to realize. <laughs> um, don't be worried about the first rate hike. So I am sharing it on the YouTube channel, but I'll just walk you through it. I found all the previous times the Fed did the first rate hike and a new cycle of rate hikes. You have 87, 88, 94, 97, 99, 2004, and 2015. Six months later, the Fed, or the Fed, six months later, the S&P 500 was lower only once, up 7% on average. 12 months later, after that first hike, the S&P was lower only once, up 10% on average. So better than your average year. All right. And again, why is that? Well, the Fed probably will start hiking rates early in an economic cycle of growth when there's still improvement coming. Right. I mean, we're at zero percent interest rates. I mean, let's say we go to 25 basis points or 50 basis points. You know, it's not that much. All right. And again, I know we get worried about it. We're always looking for some reason to have, you know, both feet jump out of any type of investment. But I think the key concept for people listening to this is, we're going to have a rate hike eventually someday, maybe maybe this time about a year from now or sometime late next year. Um, but don't get overly worried because, again, this is still a young economic cycle of growth with still, honestly, a, a pretty accommodative Fed. So just some interesting, I think, uh, concepts there. I think Jeff and I might have talked about that a couple months ago, actually, the, the data I just shared. But with, uh, with that concern about the uh, Fed rate hike coming, wanted to bring it up uh, one more time. So Scott, let's see, I'm looking at the chart you said. I think about the last one you sent was something up with China. Tell me what you're seeing from the Chinese stock market here. Yeah, and so this is just, you know, it's one of those things that gets on your radar when you're uh, doing technical analysis, running screens. In China, like a lot of, um, you know, the more aggressive, and China's very growth heavy now, but China was really doing well in coming into the year and really had a really strong move up in January and February. And since then, it's just kind of petered out. And a lot of these areas, we look at U.S. Internet, you know, those growth stocks, you know, they also kind of stalled out around the same time. But they've come back recently, and China really hasn't at all. And so it's just, it makes us wonder, is, is something going on here? We've seen it in the currency markets uh, as well. But you can see China's drifting below the 200-day moving average there. And then versus the S&P 500, you know, one thing we look at is relative strength in these ratio charts. And when it's trending up, that means China was outperforming the S&P 500. For most of 2020, China was a great place to be invested. And then that's really taken a hard turn here in about the past four months. And now we're seeing multi-year relative lows for China versus the S&P 500. It just seems like something might be going on there. And if you want to talk the other F word for us, it's fundamentals here. You know, the Chinese uh, Communist Party has been cracking down on some of these more high-flying tech companies. Obviously, Jack Ma was in the news, and he kind of disappeared for a little while and things like that. But here in the U.S., people get worried about tech regulation and things like that, uh, and lobbying or whatever it is kind of can tend to keep that from happening, or usually you can kind of bet that it's not going to be the full brunt of force uh, of a regulation that one might expect. Uh, over in China, if they decide they want to regulate tech, it just happens. And so I wonder if that's what's going on in China. But either way, the technicals appear to be weakening there. 
Uh, great points there. And let's not forget, China is a big part of emerging markets. I mean, Jeff, for several months now, has been talking about, well, you know, we've definitely been in the emerging markets overdeveloped camp for the five years I've been at the LPL. Um, but, you know, we have de- we've changed, right? We think maybe developed international can do a little bit better than emerging markets now. And that's how we're starting to position our portfolios and seeing a big chunk of emerging markets in China showing some type of technical weakness. And again, what's the reasoning? What's the rationale? A lot of times you don't know until well after the fact, right? I mean, in 2007, S&P was breaking out to new all-time highs in August of 2007. But financials in general were down like 15, 20, 25% off of their highs. There was a warning sign. Nobody knew at that time there was a major financial crisis that was going to come and banks in general were going to go down 89% on average. No one knew that. But the technicians saw some cracks in the armor, if you will, um, that said, listen, if financials aren't participating, maybe we should worry about this a little bit. And looking back, that obviously played out. And now we're saying, listen, China's not participating. Maybe there's something bigger taking place. Who knows what it is, but it, it, it can impact emerging markets. And again, that's one reason, one of the reasons we think maybe developed international um, for the first time in a long time, in our opinion, the LPL research can do a little bit better. Speaking of dropping off the grid and disappearing, John McAfee passed away. Um, just a, uh, You can go read about him. I'm, I'm, I just love following him, some of the stuff, the life he lived, and just uh, amazing. Um, but he dropped off the grid, found out he was in prison for a while, and obviously just, just passed away just uh, last week. So my thoughts go out to him there. So uh, with that, Scott, I'm going to finish things up with this week. This is an easy one. Usually I hand this off to Jeff. <laughs> There's not a lot going on this week. There's a couple, fa- I mean, it's a holiday, right? So first off, we wish everyone a happy and safe uh, July 4th holiday. Um, you know, Thank you for everyone who continues to listen to this podcast. Give us a like, give us a follow, give us a positive review. It goes a long way. Um, so things are slow, right? I mean, there's no doubt about it. This week on Friday, there is the monthly jobs number. That's kind of the big thing. I think we've got some European manufacturing data coming out, but honestly, this week's a calm one. There is not a lot of headline news. We're all going to be waiting for Monday. I'm sorry, for Friday's jobs number. But again, that's taking place right ahead of a three-day weekend, right in the middle of the year. So uh, things are things are pretty calm. So let's just hope this week kind of stays like that. So Scott, um, you know, any final comments from you? And I'm going to bring us home. That's it for me. I mean, this week, I mean, I know there's going to be a lot of people are going to be watching jobs reports. Uh, us technicians will be a little bit more focused on interest rates. You mentioned the 10-year yield. It spiked up on Friday. Now it's back down. I want to see if value can continue to outperform. I think the big question people are wondering is all these growth stocks are coming back. Is that for real? We'll be monitoring those charts closely to see if it is. No, absolutely. So thank you, Scott, for filling in for Jeff. And thanks definitely for joining this week. I think it was a a little bit of a different angle on kind of how we see the world here at LPL Research, um, but definitely very appreciated. You know, so my wife and daughter were out in California earlier this week. The boys and I batched it. We survived. They're supposed to be getting home Monday evening. So hopefully that goes well. Um, we are, again, planning on hopefully having a podcast for you guys next week, even though I know it's a holiday. got to try to find some people to do it. I might be doing just a solo podcast uh, next week, but but we'll have one for you next week. And with all of that, you know, be careful. Do not blow your fingers off. It is July 4th. We always hear about some of those things, but I wish everyone a happy and safe July 4th. Um, Lots of good food, watch some fireworks, hang out with people. You know, we all thought, I guess, last year at this time, July 4th would be that day we get out and celebrate and get back to it. Obviously, it took a little bit longer than we expected, but hopefully everyone has, again, a great July 4th, and we'll see everybody real soon. Take care. Thank you. This material was provided by LPL Financial. 
is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. There is no assurance that the views or strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal. Any economic forecasts set forth in the podcast may not develop as predicted and are subject to change. References to markets, asset classes, and sectors are generally regarding the corresponding market index. All indexes are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Index performance is not indicative of the performance of any investment. All performance reference is historical and it's no guarantee of future results. All information referenced in the podcast is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. Securities and advisory services offered throughout Bell Financial, a registered investment advisor and broker-dealer. Member FINRA and SIPC. Insurance products are offered through LPL or its licensed affiliates. To the extent you are receiving investment advice from a separately registered investment advisor that is not an LPL affiliate, please note LPL makes no representation with respect to such entity. If your financial professional is located at a bank or credit union, please note that the bank or credit union is not registered as a broker-dealer or investment advisor. These products and services are being offered through LPL or its affiliates, which are separate entities from and not affiliates of the bank or credit union. Securities and insurance offered through LPL or its affiliates are not insured by the FDIC or NCUA or any government agency. Not bank or credit union guaranteed, not bank or credit union deposits or obligations, and may lose value.